concealed by fog at the intersection of society and strange. This is an interview series about the unknown and our relationship to it. Produced by the documentary podcast, Euphemet. Here we commune and wander through the big wonder with guests who are thinkers, explorers, experiencers of the phenomena that is on the edge of it all. This is Night Drift, and I'm Jim Perry. Tonight, guest Daniel Duke, the great-great-grandchild of jesse james he grew up surrounded by stories of lost outlaw treasures and for more than two decades he has been researching the mysteries involving his connection with family freemasonry the knights templar and the secrets of the wild wild west it's something that we haven't had a chance to talk about on this very program but something i am fascinated by and as the son of a ranch or grandson of a rancher you know i spent a lot of my times kicking up dirt on old farms and daydreaming about the wild west so this is going to be really a fascinating conversation and we'll jump right into that in just a minute but i i did want to let you know to keep those emails coming in you can join the conversation tonight email me jim at euphemet.com and use hashtag night drift on twitter that's that's night with a t and have you been listening for for as you know we've been doing this for like two years now and you don't know that yet i don't know why i'm telling you now but it's how it goes All right, let's get right into it. Daniel Duke was born in Austin, Texas, and is the author of three published nonfiction books and is the great-great-grandson of the Old West outlaw, Jesse James. He lives in Texas. Daniel, welcome so much to Night Drift. Thanks for having me. It's an honor to be on your show. Yeah, well, thank you. You know, I, I think today let's take people into a time machine and let's bring them back to the Wild West. Can you explain a little bit about the time that Jesse James lived in and a little bit about Jesse James himself? Maybe for those folks that who knows, maybe they're hearing about Jesse James for the first time tonight. OK, uh, yeah. Well, the times he lived in were it, he was born in the, in 1847 and uh you know, it was at the time it was in, he was born in Western Missouri and that was the edge of the frontier back in, in that, that, at that date. Um, so it was wild. He had an, he had an uncle who they called wild bill. It wasn't the same wild bill, like wild bill Hickok. It was a different Mm. wild bill, but his uncle used to take, uh, wealthy hunters from the East coast and, you know, they'd come out looking for adventure and they would pay him to take them out into the prairie and hunt buffalo. And it was said there were eyewitness accounts that his uncle, Wild Bill, had uh, ridden his horse up next to a buffalo, jumped on the buffalo's back and stabbed it to death with his bowie knife. I mean, they were rough people. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> Nobody yeah. does that. I mean, that's that's crazy. Yeah. But uh, it, it was wild and untamed. Just, you know, there were there were Native Americans who would attack and different. There was all kinds of dangers, um, yeah. wild animals, people, all kinds of stuff. Um, and then when he was uh, around, not not long after 
he was born just within a few years. The fighting between the uh, Kansas and Missouri started. It was abolitionists back from the Northeast, from the New England states backed, uh, um, I guess, well, they backed people in Kansas and those people would go and raid into Missouri, which was a slave state. Mm-hmm. And it was, just, and then, so the people in Missouri would, you know, they, and it got to the point where they weren't just raiding slaveholders, they were raiding anybody on that side of the border, you know, on mm-hmm. the Missouri side. So people on the Missouri side would raid, and it was just raiding back and forth for about 10 years before the official start of the Civil War. Jeez. So it, it was a rough, on top of all the other dangers, they had, you know, gr- basically guerrilla warfare for almost a decade. And, oh my um, gosh. So when Jesse was 13, about 13 or 14, he was on this, on, on the civil war had just started. He was on his, uh, on his farm plowing and some union backed guerrillas rode onto his farm, strapped him to a plow. They beat him severely and left him tied to the plow. And they rode onto the farmhouse where they beat his, are they, it accounts very some say that they uh, tied his mother, who was pregnant at the time, to a tree and horse whipped her. Others say they just pushed her around. But they also hung they hung his stepfather, who was a real good man, as Dr. Reuben Samuel. And uh, they hung him. They didn't kill him, but he had permanent brain damage. Mm. And that was the mindset that kind of from that was kind of like the, the tipping point for Jesse. He wanted revenge. He lived in a rough area. It was rough rules, rough people. And um, he he wanted revenge. He wanted to join the Confederate Army just for the purpose of fighting back at the people who had attacked his farm. Yeah. And uh, he was they wouldn't allow him. They said he was too young. Uh, he finally found a group of guerrillas who were from Missouri who would let him fight. And that was Quantrell's guerrillas. Um, hmm. They they were feared by most people, even a lot of the Union Army or, or Union forces. They they were very good at killing, and that's where Jesse got his start. They were they were great. They had a well, guerrilla tactics were said to have been perfected by them. Oh and uh, they, you know, small. They'd have a group of 180 men fighting 5,000 Union cavalry, and they would lose one man and kill dozens or more of Union cavalry. It was always, oh for some reason, they they were extremely good. And uh, wow. so at the end of the Civil War. Uh, most conf- most of the Confederate veterans were allowed to, or they were granted amnesty, so they could surrender and go back home. Whereas the guerrillas who Jesse had ridden with were denied amnesty, and they were to be shot on sight or taken back to a jail and hung shortly after. He tried to turn himself in, and he he got shot through his right lung, oh and uh, somehow somehow he survived. I don't know how people lived back then. Right. I mean, but it was yeah. he made it and um i guess he had it the way there's nothing in writing but to my best well my best theory is that he had a choice he could either leave the country or live up to the outlaw name and and start start robbing and uh that's what i thought for years until later i dug up his connections to freemasonry and things of that nature and and that ties into as guerrillas they were almost they would have been considered special forces in their day. Mm. Uh, and then he wasn't allowed to turn himself in under the threat of death. So, and plus he was a young man, uh, hot headed, you know, I don't know. He wasn't real hot headed. They said he had a dry sense of humor, but when he got mad, he was deadly. Uh, yeah. 
And that's what started his outlaw career. He started, he and the younger brothers, who, by the way, uh, Cole Younger and his other brothers, they they came from a union family, but union-backed guerrillas robbed and murdered their father, and that's why they rode with Quantrell's guerrillas. Oh, my gosh. Uh, so they were in the same boat. They teamed up. Frank and Jesse James, who were brothers, teamed up with the Younger brothers, and they formed the James, James Younger Gang. Uh, they started robbing trains, banks, stagecoaches, um, and just they, they did it for over 15 years yeah. and got away with it. Most people didn't have a career like that uh, that would last, you know, an outlaw life. It's not a long, you don't have very long lifespans, right. but they, they were good at what they did. And they, they applied their guerrilla tactics to their, the robbing. And that's I mean, you have these you have these kids, these children, basically with their backs up against the wall, right? In a world yeah. that's responding to them in one way, and that's with violence, and you know, take or be taken from, and that has to have had like completely influenced his life from the end of it, I suppose. And I, I think some of that is where some of the story gets gets really fascinating, interesting as well. And, and so we'll go into that. And, and as you said, maybe the discovery of being a part of some fraternal orders. Um, but, you know, when when was it that you first, you know, learned that you were related to Jesse James? Was that something that you had always known about as a child or when did that occur? We we grew up hearing the stories as, as children. My mother, she grew up hearing the same stories. It was passed on every every generation had told the stories that uh, Jesse didn't die as history stated, and then he moved to Texas, changed his name, and died at an old age in 1943 at the age of 97 years old wow. as a farmer in Blevins, Texas, which is roughly 22 miles southeast of Waco, Texas. Wow, out in farm country. Yeah. And what was your response to that as a kid? Did you ever have a time where uh, you rejected this idea or you thought it was family lore? Just to give an example, for a long time, my family thought that we were of Irish descent on my father's side. Recently, within the last year, we took a uh, actually an ancestry test, and we could have not been more wrong. And <laughs> let me tell you this, like, let me tell you this, Dan, like, it was really hard to approach my brother who had a shamrock tattoo and tell him what the truth of it was. <laughs> that would be hard. Oh my God. Yeah. But, but, but families, you know, they do have these lures. They do have stories. And sometimes, you know, you don't know what's fact from fiction and what's a tall tale. But how about you? How did you weigh in on that? Yeah. We, you know, as a child, I thought I had no, no reason to disbelieve it. But then when you go to school and you, you know, you read little bits in history about Jesse James and how he was killed by Bob Ford in 1882, um, I thought, okay, how could he have faked his death? Everybody said, you know, there's a picture of the guy dead. And it made me wonder. And, uh, but then the family stories always sounded so convincing. And my mother is my late mother. She passed away in 2015. Name was Betty Dorset Duke, and she wrote three books about it. Um, she decided when my sister and I went to college, she had enough time where she could pursue other interests, and she wanted to find out once and for all who was telling the truth, the accepted history or the family story. Yeah, and uh, we got all. She gathered all our family photographs, and my sister and I helped her research on 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 the side. Um, 
but we had our family photographs that looked like the James family to us, but we, we knew better than to just say, Oh, you know, hello world. Look at this. You know, we've, (laughs) we've verified this. We had to have experts. Uh, So we went to the department of public safety headquarters in Austin. They have a forensics department and they're our version of the state police here in Texas. Um, We went their forensic lab, their, their, their experts to, verified that our photos matched the historically accepted photos. And then we took the photos to the photographic forensic analysts. Uh, I can't say that right. My tongue, I'm tongue tied today. It's uh, a lot of words. Let me tell you. Analysis lab at the Austin police department. And they, they verified our photos matched. And there was a third group. My mom, she, for some reason, she wanted three, three opinions so we had two that that were on our side, and we went to uh, Visionics in New Jersey, who ended up getting purchased by another company, but they were world leaders in facial recognition technology, and they also verified that our photographs matched the the historically accepted photographs of Jesse and some of his family members, even um, his mother, who was wearing a homemade dress, it, she had the the exact same dress with the exact same pattern. Uh, same missing arm, same face. Everything was the same. Oh my um, gosh. Her, down to the eyeglasses she wore, every every detail all matched. So we were excited. And my mom went to, she thought, okay, the world's going to love this. So she wanted to call, um, she called the James Farman Museum in Missouri, thinking they would love to know that Jesse wasn't killed by Bob Ford, effect his death. And that was the last thing they wanted to hear which we were shocked. We were so naive going into this, but uh, we were shocked. I thought, how could they not like that? I thought they sided with Jesse, um, but, <laughs> but yeah. um, found out later, I think it boiled down to money. Um, hmm. They wanted to shut her up. They started attacking her shortly after that uh, online and uh, phone calls at night. And it escalated over the years to death threats. The FBI got involved and finally put a stop to it, fortunately. Um, but Oh, my gosh. I, I, the only thing we I started looking into how much money they brought in at their museum. And this was in the 90s. They were bringing in $7 million a year in the late 90s on average. Oh and it was a poor, yeah, so it was a poor county. Uh, right up the road from there is the house in St. Joseph, Missouri, is the house where Jesse was allegedly murdered. And that was bringing in a ton of money. So I think it was hurting pocketbooks and it made people do irrational things. Uh, it makes sense. I mean, that is a story that is echoed in the paranormal sphere all the time. You know, uh, the, the, the new insight or the data that comes about to help reshape a story or have a different interpretation is not mm-hmm. always welcome because there's those dollars <laughs> coming through. Yeah. And there's a lot of, yeah, people, people build an industry on something. They've got that gravy train and they don't want anything threatening that money flow. I, I, that's the only, the only thing I could come, come up with as to why they would do that. Um, of course, they never admitted why they did it. They just, they just quit bothering us. So. Yeah. Oh my gosh! <laughs> and we were happy with that. Yeah. Um, well, I, but, I didn't. I didn't know that this was a, 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 a an entire family pursuit, and that your mom yeah. had published books on this. And in that way, listen, you've got three books sitting on my desk right here. You know, not all of them about Jesse James, but um, I think it's your newest one, Wild Wild West: The Secret History of the Wild Wild West, right? 
Uh Um, you know, when you look at these works, what do you think your mom would say? I think she would have been happy. Um, she, she had written three books and, um, she still had, there was a lot of, she, she wasn't ready. She wasn't ready to die. I guess most people are, uh, she passed away unexpectedly in the middle of the night. And my sister and I vowed to continue her research. And, um, that's what led to over the years while helping mom with, with the book she'd written, you know, just the research side of it. I was also researching the treasure side of it. Uh, because there was a treasure map and some other items that were passed down through the family. And I wanted, I wanted to, to, to basically every question we had, I was researching everything and the treasure caught my eye. Who wouldn't want to find treasure, but uh, right. 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 And we had the map, the family lore was no one had ever found it. And I thought, God, I got to figure this out. So it was a lot of fun. And yeah. then it led into areas I never dreamed it would have gone, you know, taken me to. But um, I think she would have liked it. But she, I, I personally think she would have been real proud that my sister and I both uh, kept it up. Yeah. Yeah, I can imagine so. I can really imagine so. Um, with that, I, you know, I can't wait to ask you about the treasure map and how that came about and uh and and talk more about this potential fraternal order and also i want to go back and and uh suss out how some of these moments really felt to you as well and so we'll do that with uh guest daniel duke right here on night drift after this i've been drifting on the sea of heartbreak trying to get myself ashore for so long for so long Listening to the strangest stories Wondering where it all went wrong For so long For so long Follow Night Drift with Jim Perry on Spotify and subscribe on Apple Podcasts to receive new episodes of Night Drift automatically and gain access to all of our past episodes. With Jim Perry on Alternative Talk, 1150 AM, KKNW, Seattle. Now, here again is Jim. This is Night Drift. I'm Jim Perry. You know, we now have an ad-free Euphemet podcast feed for subscribers. 
and you can use it wherever you listen to podcasts. Just go to youfromad.com and click the top banner to become a patron today. Unlock ad-free shows and access to the occasional hangout when those happen on there. And thank you, of course, to those that have subscribed, and thank you for listening tonight. Um, a very interesting program. Our guest tonight, Daniel Duke, has has this book out. It's, it's not the newest book, in which I thought for a minute it was, but it's this great book, Jesse James and the Lost Templar Treasure, Secret Diaries, Coded Maps, and the Knights of the Golden Circle. And it's an investigation into the lost treasures of Jesse James and the Freemasons and their connections to the Templars, Rosicrucians, and the Founding Fathers. Daniel, great to have you on Night Drift tonight, my friend. Thanks. It's great to be here. You know, uh, if someone were to ask me what this book was like, I would say it's like Da Vinci Code set in the Wild West. That's that's exactly right. Um, <laughs> that Yeah, it's and I've often told people um, if, you know, the Da Vinci Code was said to have been based off Holy Blood, Holy Grail. Um, and I I believe that this story is a continuation of the story written about in Holy Blood, Holy Grail. Yeah. Or the it's get, only without the religious aspect to it. Yeah. Um, it's yeah. got some religion, but not, you know, the esoteric traditions. But I, I I didn't touch on, you know, the whether or not Jesus had a baby. So. Right. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, you know why when you have the treasure map, you don't need to even go into that angle. You know what I mean? Um, who cares true. when you got a treasure map? So so take me back to that moment when, um, you know, was this treasure map something in your family that you had all, always known about? Or were there's a, was there a moment there when you found it and were like, oh, my God, what is this? It, it, we had known about it. Um, well, I found out about it as a teenager. It was I, I was a senior in high school. And uh, my mom and I went to visit my great aunt Judy and uh, Judy's husband at my, who was my great uncle. Um, he had, he, he was my mom's uncle by blood. He married Judy. Anyway, Judy was going through all the stuff and she had the treasure map with a newspaper clipping in it. When I thought the newspaper clipping was odd. I'll tell you about that in a minute, but uh, she, she passed it on. She said, this was your, you know, was Bud, my, my mom's uncle. And this belonged to Bud, and he would want you to have it because she was interested in the family history and, and everything about Jesse. So uh, we looked at it, and for years we couldn't figure out what it was. But she gave it to us in an envelope that had been passed down with this old newspaper clipping. And the clipping was of Bonnie and Clyde, the, the, the killing of Bonnie and Clyde. And I thought, this is weird. Oh, I don't know wow. why that would be with that. Yeah. Um, but later on, I found out. My mom found out, actually, we were going through land records and doing the genealogy of his neighbors just to see if they were related or had, you know, what connections they had. Um, his one of his neighbors on the farm in Blevins was a man named Frank Krause. Some people call it Krause, but he was the maternal grandfather of Bonnie Parker. And I thought, this is weird. Jesse oh James living next to Bonnie Parker's granddad. It was just odd. What? And I don't know if there was a connection, if there was a continuation of the crime stuff or not. And that's something I'd love to find more answers to, but I've, I haven't been able to find anything other than that's an odd coincidence. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He was the first man to sh teach me how to shoot a gun. Yeah. <laughs> That was, and then, um, oh God, all the stories that came, came about that. But with the, the treasure map, we, you know, it, it passed on down the family along. We also had, um, 
a diary, one of Jesse's diaries from 1871 to 1876. Mm. And in that, he mentioned a lot of known gang members and other people, uh, cattlemen who were famous cattlemen in Texas who uh, nobody, I, I never would have dreamed they had a connection to Jesse until we saw their names and addresses in his diary or daybook. Wow. So yeah. it was really cool. It was a big, he had a lot of connections and every one of those, those cattlemen had connections with a uh, Quanta Parker, who was a Comanche chief. And uh, you know, his, he was half white, half Comanche. His dad, Nakona, I believe was his name had kidnapped uh, Cynthia Ann Parker. And, you know, they had Quanta Parker and he was the last great Comanche chief. Uh, they, a lot of the, a lot of Quantrell's guerrillas, including Jesse and them, were said to have been friends with Quana. And I thought it was odd. Some of the treasures are said to have been buried on Comanche land in Oklahoma. So interesting. I, and I actually followed one. My mom and I went up to Oklahoma and we found Jesse's initials carved in a stone where they were said to have camped years ago. And uh the treasure, if that map, that was a different map. If the treasure is, if the map's correct, it's right on the other side of the road from where we were. So, but it's, Oh my gosh. Uh, the funny thing about that, we got back home and we had told no one what we were doing. You don't, you don't go out and say, Hey, we're, let's go find this treasure we're looking for. Uh, we kept our mouth shut. we looking for it. When we you, got home. You, you, all movies show you that as the way to yeah. do it. You don't tell yeah. people about the treasure map. Yeah. <laughs> so we get back home, and as soon as within 30 minutes of walking in the door, the phone rang. My mom picked it up, and uh, that kind of dates us. It was, you know, she picked up the phone instead of the cell phone. But anyway, <laughs> uh, the, there was a man telling us that's not our that, – that treasure is not meant for us and to keep away from it. And I oh. thought, how do you know who we were? where we were and what we were doing and how yeah. to find our number. I mean, the whole thing was strange because we, we had an unlisted number on top of that, especially after the death threats we'd had. So it was, oh it was a little, little, that was odd. So, uh, and then that, wow. that it just, I, I, can't, I tend to get off, go, there's a million rabbit holes I can go down with. No, that's story. okay. I, I have a feeling that I'm going to uh, tempt you to come back on the show. So go down okay. as many rabbit holes as you want, because we got, we got so much time, but okay. So, so to backtrack, first of all, you said that was a different map. So how many, yeah. how many maps <laughs> did you find? <laughs> There's a lot of maps floating around out there that have been altered uh, treasure. And then there's guys that were just trying to make money. I'll sell you this map. You know, well, why mm. don't you go find it yourself if you've got the map? But yeah. uh, <laughs> it's, it's, and, and then that's a whole nother thing. A lesson I learned just because you know where something is doesn't mean it's accessible. Um, mm. they're for, like the man who gave us the phone call. Um there's, there's a, I think a lot of them are watched if they're a large treasure like that one was said to have been $2 million in gold that was mm. in a uh, placer. Some say placer gold, others say um, Mexican coins because they'd robbed the train of uh, a gold train and killed the Mexican federales and took the gold. And uh, mm. that, that was, the, that was one of the stories. So we're not sure. We just, you know, it's supposed to be a lot of gold. I don't know if it was place or gold or coins or what, but uh, it's when it's large catches, I think, I think most of those are still watched. Yeah. So 
this mysterious figure that, you know, threatened you on the phone, you know, it, it, what's interesting uh, parallel to some paranormal stories out there is this men in black entity yeah. or being or person, right? That when someone gets a little too close, you know, they can expect a visit from a man in black. And what often happens is sometimes it's, you know, once, other times it's it's a string of visits and a pressure and a watching over once you've kind of like crossed that line in the sand. Was that the first of other experiences of those uh, sort of interactions or, or was it just one time? That that particular that gentleman has uh, he's helped us in the past for, for the last 20 plus years. Uh, he helped. He helped my mom. He helped my sister and I. Uh, it gives. It's like he talks in riddles sometimes. Uh, and the, the the frustrating part is he knows everything we're talking about. He knows what we're looking for, but he won't come out and say it. You have to find it on your own. And that really? to me is so frustrating. He, yeah. It, and I didn't write that in a book. I probably I don't know if I should even be mentioning it, but I'm not going to tell his <laughs> name, but uh, or the name he gave us. But um, he he. He's he's helped us a lot. He'll he'll mention clues or uh, bits of information, or he'll mention a name. And I've we learned over over the years if, when he mentions something, write it down and and research it because you're going to find something that ties in with it. And it always worked. Uh, I don't know. I I've got theories on that. I'm not sure that I've read about the Men in Black, but he never he never really threatened. But he would give warnings about certain things like that treasure. Um, And I I, I, so and I heed their warnings after things. He's um, he's told us things that would happen. And three days later, you see it on the national news. And I'm that kind of thing made a believer out of me. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Do you remember one of those instances uh, in particular? What what, what was he? Really? Yeah, like the Ferguson riots, uh, the way they, the way they, uh, uh, the, there was a guy who kept, uh, I guess, stirring things up, and the way they silenced him, you know, as a Humvee pulled up and they pulled him into the Humvee, and that, that, that he told us about that three days before it happened, exactly how it would happen. Oh my gosh. So I don't know if I should have said that or not. That kind of. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, you know, okay. So the the thing that is really interesting about this is that you are on that epic quest. You're on the hero's journey right now. Right. And what is so fascinating about your story was, I mean, this is, this is more than what I obviously knew before having you on, but I knew from reading the books and and hearing your other interviews that there were a lot of parallels between you and a paranormal investigator hot on the trail of trying to decode something that seems like there is a system. There's something else in place here, but you just can't put your finger on it quite necessarily. And so as you've gone along, you, you now have this map, you now have this like sort of deep throat character, like sort of, you know, helping you, but within riddles and yeah. you're also encountering synchronicities, uh, the Bonnie and Clyde connection and, and things of this nature. Um, how do you feel right now after completing these three books, being where you're at right now? And, we, you know, we can fast forward to where we're at now in, in a bit. But just right now, how does this pursuit feel to you? And do you could you have ever imagined you would have been in this like sort of ongoing mystery novel? 
I never would have imagined it. Um, it used to, sh my mother, my late mother and my sister and I would sit down at night sometimes in the evenings and just talk uh, about how mind-blowing it all was. I mean, we start out searching an Old West outlaw. And, you know, if they're, the, the treasure map, for example, I thought at most it might be a saddlebag with some silver, maybe a couple of gold coins. And I would have been just thrilled. Yeah. But it kept opening doors to things that were, well, like just um, secret societies. Uh, researching the treasures led to occult Christian and Jewish Kabbalah, uh, mm. different, and also other Middle Eastern esoteric traditions mm -hmm. that were tied in with, with the treasure template. Uh, we met people like the, the former attorney general of Texas, Wagner Carr, who's now since passed, but he, he was, he was in, interested in Jesse and the gold. He had his driver show my mother and I where three large catches were recovered with, with the, oh, well, the, the Texas Rangers oversaw the, the, uh, the recovery of the gold. And wow. some of the gold instead had, uh, Span were Spanish ingots. So mm. it, it, and he said it was all the same group, but he never would say anything past that. This was Wagner Carr, the attorney general, who, by the way, was also on the Warren Commission. He was a friend of LBJ's and he was on the Warren Commission um, that, you know, investigating the assassination of JFK, which wow. I keep away from. I, I, that's a whole different ball game. I don't want to get mixed up in. Yeah. But, but, um, and then while we were with him, at the exhumation of a grave of a guy who claimed to be Jesse, but wasn't, and he'd been proven to be a hoaxer. Uh, this old man, the, the man they were looking for was J. Frank Dalton. And while he wasn't Jesse, he did have knowledge of treasures. So we, you know, we, it, it involved Jesse and stories of Jesse. So, and the treasures. So we went to the exhumation, Wagner Carr was there. And that's where I met a man named Billy Saul Estes, who was said to have been LBJ's, hitman in, by some people um, and he was a really nice old man he'd killed a lot of people or was alleged to have killed a lot of people back in the 60s uh, but <laughs> you know it, it was it was interesting so yeah. it was very odd meeting people you never thought you'd meet and and touching on on topics and and everything about this has been very very uh, oh god enlightening and mm. also just be it's humbling as well uh, it made me made us all realize how much more there is to the to life in general uh, yeah. than the way most people see it uh, and as to how I feel about this now I would say and I'm, without trying to sound corny it seems sacred to me the whole thing mm -hmm. um, not Jesse but jet what he was involved in mm. uh, that's the best word I can come up with. It's more of a sacred, or at least they believed it was sacred, and that's why they were doing what they did. So um, this, yeah, so this treasure having, you know, sort of carrying more weight than gold of, of mm -hmm. some sort of other valued significance. Well, that that's fascinating. Um, listen, I want to talk to you about that. And thank you for sharing your your feelings about it as well and, and, and you know, how you're feeling about all of this. It's fascinating. Um, we're going to take a quick break here. And then right after this, we're going to go uh, more, I think, into the the connection to these esoteric orders and, and what this means and what this treasure 
what this treasure could be. I'm so excited to explore that with our guest, Daniel Duke, here on Night Drift. I'm Jim Perry. This is Night Drift. Follow Night Drift with Jim Perry on Spotify and subscribe on Apple Podcasts to receive new episodes of Night Drift automatically and gain access to all of our past episodes. Alternative Talk, 1150 AM, KKNW, Seattle. Now, here again is Jim. I'm Jim Perry, and this is Night Drift. We are getting lost, well, in the late 1880s here. And we're in the Wild West. And we're here with the great-great-grandson of the outlaw, Jesse James. Now, notorious, but also very mysterious. And that mystery keeps being... Well, really unwound by Daniel and his mother and his sister as a family that is beginning to embrace and realize there's something so much more mysterious here. Maybe something almost ancient. As Daniel said, potentially sacred. Now, what could that be? Daniel, you're there with uh, this map and you're starting to make some of these discoveries that are potentially much more esoteric than what you thought could have been. What was the first step when you had that map that connected it and connected this treasure to something like the Knights Templar or one of these esoteric cabals? Yeah, um, I'm trying to retrace that mentally. Uh, 
I had, you know, we had the map and then we'd always heard legends that Jesse was part of a secret society called the Knights of the Golden Circle, who mm. were a pro-Confederate group. Uh, they were kind of like uh, spies and saboteurs for the Confederacy during the Civil War. After the Civil War, they were said to have wanted to gain as much wealth as they could any way they could to fund a second civil war, which always reminded me of rival football teams. The one, the losing side always wants another shot. Um, Right. And so I had no reason to disbelieve that, but um, after uh, I finally, I, there was, there was a treasure template called the Knights of the Golden Circle or KGC treasure template. And you can look that up online and find it. It's a rhombus with uh, two circles, two concentric circles and some, some symbols on it. Um, I had, I had, you know, I, I found that and I'd heard about it. So, but I, there was no scale. Uh, it, no one ever gave a scale or any, you know, anything to go by, but after, uh, Wagner cars, former, you know, Wagner cars driver had showed us these three sites plus a, a former World War II vet, George Roaming, who was a 32nd degree Freemason, showed us the uh, another site that he had when he was 10 to 12 years old. Jesse, he lived near Jesse when Jesse was an old man and Jesse had hired hired George and sworn to an oath to help him move 700 bars of gold, each one each weighing about 15 pounds um, each. Uh, he had he, he moved them 20 miles from where Jesse lived in Blevins, and they met several two other old men who had also hired boys around the, the age George was. Um, George told us that when it, you know he shortly after that he and the other two boys lied about their age. They joined the war effort, ended up going to to Europe. Um, George was the only one who made it back alive, and when mm-hmm. he got back, all the, all three of those old the elderly men were dead, including Jesse. Mm. And he said he was the only one who knew where this treasure was. And I'm, I'm sorry if I'm going down another whole rabbit hole. Oh, good. Um, he had mentioned that the treasure, um, he, he drew a map for my mom and I. We went to look for it, and it's on Fort Hood Military Reservation. We weren't going to touch that. <laughs> That's a good way to end up dead or in a prison somewhere. <laughs> right. So we just you know, backed off. Um, but, but it did give me a fourth reference point to use this template on the KGC treasure template and see how it worked. And I got the dimensions from it. Well, after getting, figuring that out, I wondered if I stacked those, you know, I made a transparency of it and overlaid it on Google earth and it it turned in, I did this. It took countless hours. I covered most of the United States with, it turns into a grid. It's like a, a grid system for a city only, you know, with only without, like a lot of cities have vacant lots in it and no, but this has a lot more vacant lots than, you know, there's no treasure on it. Every spot it shows isn't a treasure, but if there's a treasure connected with Freemasonry and their associated groups, it will be on that grid. Um, I didn't know that at first, but as I was building it, I found out it lined up with the Los Lunas Decalogue stone, which has ancient Hebrew writing in New Mexico. Hmm. It lined up with Victoria peak, where a giant treasure was supposed to said to have been found. And it was even mentioned that treasure was mentioned in the Watergate hearings. Um, Mm. It it lined up with Oak Island, Uh, Scott Walter who had written about the hooked X. It lines up with the, the Kensington rune stone that he had written about Mm -hmm. Um, Oak Island, the Newport tower, a lot of areas of historic 
significance or mysterious, you know, historic interest and also other known treasure sites. Um, and it went further. It ends up lining up that it was a grid system. I found out it was a large, medium and small template. And I didn't I couldn't understand why I started. I wanted to know why the certain dimensions of these templates. And so I started looking at it ended up to make a long story short. It led me to Kabbalah and Gematria. Um, and it, it started things started clicking and making sense. Uh, it also tied in. Uh, everything about our story, it seemed like Masons were coming out of the woodwork. We, kept, we were meeting more Masons than we did, than I knew ever existed. Um, and it, uh, tying, I knew Jesse was a Mason under his alias. He had connections with Albert Pike, the famous 33rd degree Mason. Um, I traced that back. And while tracing that back, I came across writings of Marie Bauer Hall who was the wife of Manly Palmer Hall, who wrote The Secret Teachings of All Ages. She had written a story about this treasure in in Williamsburg, Virginia, under a church called Bruton Parish Church. Uh, People had mocked her. She she found encrypted writings and symbols in the works of Shakespeare, which led her to Williamsburg. In the church cemetery, there were... uh, like encryptions and anagrams on uh, on tombstones, which led her to the original foundations of the original church that was there. And I thought, okay, this, people people mocked her, and she proved them wrong. And she went further to claim there was a vault beneath that church, twenty feet down, that contained treasures. Uh, and Manly Palmer Hall had helped her by this point. Uh, they both claimed. This vault contained treasures that were, you know, traditional gold and silver and jewels. But it went further, and they they stated that they had uh, it contained information and documents that would shake the foundations of history and also religion. So, yeah, I, I, I thought, my God, this is insane! And not only that, that treasure. Um, that's when I discovered it was more than just a grid system, the large, medium, and small templates, which make up basically three grids. Uh, it also included the big treasure template map that's in the shape of the Kabbalistic tree of life. Wow. And, and what I was trying to figure out how would this grid system coincide with that? And I, I had no clue until I realized it was a symbolic of a veil. And with the Kabbalistic Tree of Life, they have uh, three three veils of negative existence, mm-hmm. and that's where the, it all started clicking. It fell in place. I, I, you know, while researching that, also was one I wanted to know who came up with this. It, it seemed amazing to me. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, backtracking all the Masons, I know uh, Sir Francis Bacon was said to have been the father of mo- modern day Freemasonry. And I tracked it back to him and I thought, okay, that's, this is the guy who started it all. Everybody else who came after him, you know, just followed along with his uh, plan or him, he and his group, there was a man named Devere and others who were Mm -hmm. involved with him. Um, I thought this is the guy who did it. Uh, And I was satisfied for a couple of days, two or three days. And then that nagging questions kept bugging me. And I, I kept digging and found out his mentor was John D. Um, wow. Known, said to have been the original 007 yes. uh, alchemist, all this, a wizard. Um, it went beyond him. I kept tr- just, tr- it, I ended up tracing it from John D back through 
Well, it was Freemasons, Rosicrucians, uh, alchemists. It went back to Jewish rabbis, and it was a long line of rabbis, Abraham Zacuto and a lot of others, uh, Abraham Abulafia, uh, Paolo Riccio, who wrote a book in 1516, which has, a, I, I, I had a picture of that in my first book. It's got the hooked X that Scott Walter had discovered. It also it's and it's a map of the new world. He's pointing on the floor. It's like a hidden map in the tiles of the floor in the illustration. But it went past that to a famous rabbi known as Rashi, who was the favored court guest of Hugh, the Count of Champagne, who was one of the founders of the Knights Templar. And I finally found my answer with that. I, I still feel like I can sigh a big relief. Uh, I found the guys who started it. It ties back to the Templar and the legends of their treasures. I'd read Holy Blood, Holy Grail. It all seemed to fit with that very well. So I decided to write the book. Uh, Mom had died uh, about, a, about a year and a half earlier. And um, I just, you know, I, I, I kind of didn't care. So I wasn't going to write about the treasures until that had happened. And that was the, mm. the impetus that pushed me to go ahead and, and publish it. Yeah. Um, and so, and I thought, okay, people are going to think I'm insane when they read this because <laughs> it, 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 it's almost, it, if I could go back 30 years in the past, I would have thought, okay, this guy's kind of out there, you know, he, he, this is some weird stuff. It doesn't make sense. Just keep away from him. But I went ahead and wrote the book <laughs> and the biggest compliment I had, and it, that made me so happy was when the current grandmaster of the Knights Templar, Timothy Hogan, wrote a glowing endorsement for the book and stated that I had cracked part of the, the code tying back to the Templar treasures in Jerusalem. Oh my so, gosh. How much better can you get? That, he admitted me, that. Yeah. And that was the greatest wow. compliment I could get. Uh, yeah. I called him. He asked, I, I called him. We had a conversation. He wouldn't tell me much because I'm not a free. I wasn't a Freemason since then I've joined the Freemasonry and, uh, I thought, I thought, okay, I walked into the lodge and I thought, now everybody's going to know what I'm talking about. They didn't, you know, it is. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, we're just talking about charities. Uh, you know, I wanted to talk about this big secret and they didn't. Right. They, they Let's go find like, treasure, oh. everybody. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, but over, there was a lot I've learned over, over all the years of research and one of those, and I know this sounds corny. It sounds like a corny movie line, but I do believe the treasure isn't meant for me or any one man. Uh, mm. There's a purpose behind it. I have a feeling the original intent was to create a, and help fund a new, a new country. You know, when they found the, they knew about the new world, um, Francis, Sir Francis Bacon's book, the new Atlantis seems like a blueprint for the society they meant America to be. Mm. And I think, I think that's what it was intended for. Yeah. I also believe there are artifacts of historic and religious significance that sh probably should be in museums instead of somebody's yeah. private collection. Right. Well, and to tie it back to Jesse James, to your great, great grandfather, right? <laughs> You're looking at a kid again with his back up against the wall, looking for a better world. And not knowing exactly what that is, right? But knowing yeah. that you got to make it happen, you got to take it. And listen, we can all, uh, you know, argue with the the you know what the the terrible things that were happening at that time to 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 you know so many peoples, right? But yeah. the idea being that, you know, 
he would be someone that co-signs on this this mission to create this better world to create this so that that's fascinating um listen uh i could talk with you for so long daniel this is amazing and i mean you started bringing up john d and then i started thinking about enochian magic and how that could factor into this and here we go and yeah. uh yeah now we're talking about jack parsons all right here <laughs> so um listen where can everyone find your work what's the best place to to get these books oh. and, and find more about you well, there's my publisher is innertraditions.com. It's Inner Traditions Bear and Company, but their website's innertraditions.com. Uh, you can go to Amazon, Barnes and Noble, anywhere books are sold. Uh, and just it's they're available in internationally too. Uh, if you want it in you know various languages, you can get it. Oh, uh, fantastic. I always always laugh and say they're available everywhere except probably North Korea and maybe Russia today. I don't know. They may have thrown them out. So, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> that's possible. Uh, listen, this podcast doesn't even reach those places anymore. I don't think yeah. so. That's how it goes. All right. Thank you so much, Daniel. I appreciate it. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Fantastic. I had a lot of fun. Oh, thank you so much. And thank you for listening to Night Drift with Jim Perry on Alternative Talk, KKNW 1150 AM Seattle. You can hear the show anytime on its podcast feed. Wherever you listen to them, go to euphemat.com for more and join us next Sunday. And until then, keep looking up. Follow Night Drift with Jim Perry on Spotify and subscribe on Apple Podcasts to receive new episodes of Night Drift automatically and gain access to all of our past episodes.